thank you for downloading this podcast from Pardes, North America. This episode of Pardes from Jerusalem features Rabbi Dr. Mish Hammer Kasoy on Parashat Shmot. Please visit elmod.pardes.org for the latest episode of Pardes from Jerusalem. And now, here is Rabbi Dr. Mish Hammer Kasoy. anything worse than being called by the wrong name. For instance, Puha, when your name is Miriam. Well, actually, I think I have an idea of one that is worse. Perhaps having your own personal identity erased entirely. And for example, being called simply Achot Shell, the sibling of. Sure, this is the kind of thing that happens on the first day of school, but if it happens on your star moment, the moment when you do something that changes the course of all of Jewish history, or even history in general, you might call that a real bummer. And that is exactly what happens in this week's Parsha, Parshat Shmot. And yet we don't hear that Miriam complains at all. Instead, she embodies the words of Emily Dickinson. I do not like the man who squanders life for fame. Give me the man who living makes a name. I've actually been wondering if maybe it is exactly Miriam's willingness to put her fame on the back burner and play the role of sister of that paves the way, not just for her greatness, but for national and personal redemption. Miriam is a champion like no other female in the Torah. In addition to heroics in this week's Parsha, guarding over Moshe from a distance, marketing Yochavid services as a wet nurse, and according to the Midrash, even serving as defiant midwife, Pua. She's twice mentioned as a partner with Moshe and Aaron. And the people of Israel wait for her when she's ill. Her death is noted in the Torah as a significant moment in history, and she leads the women in song at the Red Sea. Now, her name only appears 16 times in the whole Torah, while Moshe and Aaron are mentioned hundreds of times each. Nevertheless, Moshe, Aaron, and Miriam are referred to repeatedly as the ultimate trifecta of leadership. For example, in in Micha, it says, um, and you can find this on the source sheet that uh, that accompanies this podcast. In fact, I brought, I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of bondage. I set before you Moshe, Aaron, and Miriam. So too in, uh, in Masechet Tanit, in the Gemara 9a, Rabbi Yossi Bar Yehuda says, the people of Israel had three excellent leaders, Moshe, Aaron, and Miriam. Three good gifts were extended to the people of Israel on their behalf. The well, the clouds, and the manna. The well was provided due to the merit of Miriam, the clouds of glory because of Aaron, and the manna on account of Moshe. So all three, Aaron, Moshe, and Miriam, are actually placed on the same level of leadership. And yet in our Parsha, she's totally unnamed. Now, Ironically, according to the Midrash, it's actually this week in which Miriam earns the status of prophetess. She's called a prophetess, a Nevi'ah, in Exodus 15, uh, when she leads the women in dance. Um, but it isn't clear exactly 
what she has prophesied and when. And the rabbis come to the rescue, again, on your source sheet. Um, and it says, I'll read it first in English and then in Hebrew. And his sister stood from afar. Why did Miriam stand from afar? Rabbi Amram said in the name of Rav, because Miriam prophesied and said, in the future, mother will give birth to a child. Right? She's saying about her, she says to her mom, in the future, my mom is going to give birth to a child that will be the savior of the Jewish people. And when Moshe was born, the entire house was filled with light. Miriam's father arose and kissed her on the head. Amram said to Miriam, my daughter, your prophecy has been fulfilled. That is what it says in Exodus 15. And Miriam the prophetess, the brother of Aaron, took the tambourine. Was she only the brother of Aaron and not the brother of Moshe? No, of course not. She, she, had, she just prophesied while she was still the sister of Aaron and not yet the sister of Moshe. And when they, but when they put, when Moshe was put in the river, her mother arose and hit her on the head again and said to her daughter, my daughter, what happened to your prophecy? And this is why the verse says, and his sister stood by from afar, she, for she wanted to know what would be the results of her prophecy. I love this midrash for so many reasons. It calls attention to her remarkable decision to stand from a distance and watch what happens when a newborn is placed in a float and pushed into the sea. I mean, I think myself of Hagar, who sat at a distance when her own son Yishmael was imperiled, saying, let me not look on as the child dies. And I myself probably would have covered my own eyes for this part had I been in a movie theater. Um, Miriam's deep faith and optimism is already implicit in the Torah by her decision to right, stand from a distance even while she's being socially distanced. But the Midrash takes it to the level of prophecy, and the Midrash accentuates how she maintains that hope, even in the face of doubt and cynicism, cynicism that would surely have surrounded her, enduring social costs like being set aside, mirachok, um, and perhaps even banishment, just because of her brave position. And the Midrash also teaches us that a Jewish prophetess combines her faith with activism. Perhaps you know the joke about the true believer who's caught in a flood and God sends a fire engine and the rescue boat and the helicopter and the believer turns them down. No, no, God will save me. Don't worry, God will save me. Um, preferring to rely on supernatural intervention 
Miriam is not that type at all. Not only does she stand in the reeds, jumping into action with Bapuro, she chides her father Amram. Have some faith, she says to him, as it says in Sota. Um, the sages teach Amram, Moshe's father, Miriam's father, was the great man of his generation. Once he saw the wicked Paro, he said, once the Paro said, every son that's born you shall cast into the river, um, he said, we are laboring for no good reason. All of our children are going to be killed. So he rose and divorced his wife and everyone followed suit. Miriam said to him, father, you're worse than Paro. Paro decreed with regard to the males, but you're declaring against the males and the females. Paro decreed that the sons would die only in this world, but you're decreeing that they'll die in this world and the world to come. Paro decree, Paro's decree may work and it may not work, but by divorcing your wives, you can be sure that your decree will work and no children will be born. So Miriam is an ideal Jewish heroine and prophetess. She combines bitachon, behishtadlut, faith and action. But she does so from the, all from the perspective of sister. It isn't about her, not for a second. She is there entirely in support of and sees her lot as dependent on that of her brother Moshe. Indeed, ahorachot is a key word in this week's Barsha. Um, it appears precisely seven times. No joke, no coincidence. And sisterhood is essential here. If there's a theme to the book we just finished, Bereshit, Genesis, sibling rivalry is for sure it. It, be it begins with the fratricide of Cain and Abel and moves through the fighting of chosenness between Yitzchak, the fight for chosenness between Yitzchak and Yishmael, Esav and, and Yaakov and then through the bitter, violent tension between the 12 sons of, Ra of Rachel and Leah. With the climactic ending of Bereshit, there's a fragile peace between the future tribes. All the tribes remain in the fold and they have each of them a critical place in Am Yisrael, but the tensions between the Confederate tribes um, and their struggle for ascendancy remains really central in the book of Bereshit plays a major role in the book of Judges, in the book of Samuel, and in the book of Kings. So the triumph of Bereshit is not the defeat of sibling rivalry, but rather it's the addition alongside of sibling rivalry. They add, there, there's a triumph of love and unity together with, which we perhaps oversimplistically and idealistically call brotherhood, as if brotherhood is about love and unity. Sibling rivalry is when we see our success as endangered by our siblings. Brotherhood is when we see that our success is more collective than it is individual. Um, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs really picked up this theme beautifully um, on page 181 of Not in God's Name, Confronting Religious Violence. He says, I quote, finally, Genesis tells us that sibling rivalry is not a given of the human condition, for what it tells us, tells are not just four narratives of conflict between brothers. The stories themselves tell a larger story. We can see this by one simple move, looking at the last scene in each story. 
to the end of the at the end of the first, Cain and Abel. Abel is dead and Cain wears the mark of a murderer. At the end of the second, Isaac and, and, and Ishmael are standing together at their father's grave. At the end of the third, Jacob and Esau meet, embrace and go their separate ways. At the end of the fourth, Joseph and his brothers work through a process of forgiveness and reconciliation. So each time, Rabbi Sachs points out, the situation is getting better and better. The, the brothers are moving more towards brotherhood and away from sibling rivalry. This is a highly, I return to the quote, this is a highly structured literary sequence whose unmistakable message is that sibling rivalry may be natural, but it is not inevitable. It can be conquered by generosity of spirit, active efforts of reconciliation, and the realization dramatized in Jacob's struggle with the angel at night that mimetic desire is misconceived. There's no need to want someone else's blessing. We each have our own. All of this prepares the way for the fifth story of siblings in the Bible, one that will gloriously transcend all of the others, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, between whom there is no rivalry. To the contrary, it is Miriam who watches over the young Moses and ensures that he knows who his parents and his people are. It is Aaron who acts with Moses, his spokesman in, in Egypt, and who becomes the first priest to stand beside the greatest of the prophets. The implication is that only when a people has overcome its internal rivalries is it ready for the journey from slavery to freedom. End of quote. I believe that Miriam plays the critical role in facilitating this process. Rivalry is anathema for her. Moses' rise spells the success for the people as a whole and for her as an individual, not competition not a source of rivalry. Let us return to the seven times that achut, brotherhood, um, appears in our Parsha. And while the, word, while the word ach appears 700 times in the Bible, nearly 200 of them are in Genesis, and the word achot is another 114 times, but the vast majority of cases, the word ach or achot means, well, brother or sister, i.e. the child of a shared parent. And the seven, but the seven occurrences in our Parsha show a sort of learning process. After an initial mention of the death of Yosef and his brothers, Miriam is twice referred to and mentioned above, uh, as mentioned above, simply as Moshe's sister, Ahoto. But then a few verses later, the term Ach appears again, but with a slight shift. Achim is not used to narrowly refer to literal brothers who share a parent, but broadly to refer to all of Moshe's fellow Hebrews who are his kinsmen. Sometime after that, when Moshe had grown up, he went out to his kinsfolk, El Echav, and witnessed their labors. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his kinsmen, Me Echav. The first reference to his achim is surprising. 
How did Moshe come to understand that the Hebrew slaves with whom he doesn't live and really never lived um, and whose day-to-day -day existence is completely and totally different than his in the palace? Are, um, and nevertheless, he sees them as his kinsmen. And the second reference where it says, a Hebrew, one of his kinsmen, is completely superfluous. Um, the superfluity that he's one of his brethren, um, emphasizes Moshe's subjective experience, his sense that all Hebrews are his brethren, as if they share a parent and grew up in the same home. Miriam's nourishing example surely helped Moshe to internalize the notion of brotherhood and its significance kind of obligation and a deep sense of love and intertwined destiny, the kind that compelled Moshe to get involved against his personal interest and perhaps even against common sense and good judgment. In the next scene where it says, Moshe turned this way and that, and seeing no one about, he struck the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Um, he has a similar experience the next day when he intervenes in an internal argument. Um, when he went out the next day, he found two Hebrews fighting, and he said to the offender, why do you strike your fellow? Lama taket reacha. Reacha, reacha can mean the guy next door, but it also has the connotation of friendship and beloved. Chaver or yadid. Reim ahuvim, someone you care about. And Moshe has just internalized the sense of kinship to such a degree that he's now prepared to attempt to educate others as well about their sense of fellowship with each other. In the sixth mention, God commands Moshe to seek his brother, to go and seek his brother, Aaron. And Moshe responds by a full articulation of his broad sense of connection. He says to Yitro, I'm going to see my brethren not just Aaron, my, the brother with whom I share parents, but all of my people who are to him as brothers. So by subordinating his personal identity, her, when Miriam subordinates her personal identity, she introduces a whole new model for sibling relationships, kinship, brotherhood, and mutual aid rather than rivalry. And it's this relationship that Moshe internalizes and expands, paving the way to national redemption. As I describe the unjealous and uncompetitive love of Miriam, Aaron and Moshe, some of you are undoubtedly thinking about the way Miriam is later struck with leprosy in Bamidbar, uh, when she and Aaron are speaking jealously of Moshe. In my opinion, this just sort of strengthens the thesis. The fact, the fact that Miriam and Aaron also turn out to have human jealousies and even failings makes Miriam's willingness to be defined as sister of um, and her profound sense of kinship that much more inspiring. Who is a gibor? Someone who conquers their natural impulses, and that's exactly what she does. So now we return to where we began. Miriam plays the star role in this week's Parsha precisely because she goes unnamed. She's a true prophetess and a leader because she sees herself in service of others rather than the center of attention. She models for Moshe as well as for each one of us what it means to put sisterhood and brotherhood ahead of personal stardom.
to have faith in God's redemption and to act bravely to make redemption a reality. Once sibling rivalry and jealousy are sidelined in favor of common purpose, the love and solidarity of siblings can emanate outwards and expand to kinship of an entire people. And from there, please God to the entire world. So my prayer for all of us this week is that we should all have the gvura to sideline whatever natural jealousy and threat we might feel from our siblings and our rivals and common man on the street, to strive to see that all of us are really kin in a common quest for redemption. And when we all join together, we make that redemption possible. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you again for downloading this podcast, a production of Pardes North America. If you liked what you just heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. Be sure to follow us on Spotify for the latest episode of Pardes from Jerusalem or by visiting elmod.pardes.org. Tune in next week as Rabbi Elchanan Miller teaches on Parashat Va'era. Thanks for listening.